We are in the book of the Judges. This is part 21. This is the 21st sermon that I have preached in Judges. Some of you guys, uh, you left, and we were in Judges back in May, and now you're back, and we're still in Judges. That's okay, because we like verse-by-verse expository preaching, the whole unedited story. But if you're joining us for the first time, I want to kind of set the tone a little bit, because you're dropping you 21 sermons into the book of Judges. Israel is in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God raises up a leader for them, Moses. He leads them out of slavery. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then his successor Joshua takes over. He leads them into the promised land. The book of Joshua is often referred to the, the conquest. And after Joshua, we have Judges, the settlement period. Joshua had gone into the land. They conquered most of the land, but not all of it. And one of the answers that Scripture provides in Judges chapter 2 was in order to test the subsequent generations to see if they would wholeheartedly obey God, if they would be faithful just as their ancestors were. And of course, they're not. They don't. In Judges, we have this sin cycle that just repeats itself over and over and over again, where instead of driving out the nations and the inhabitants that live in the land... The people just cozy up to them. They just move in next door to them. And the people introduce them to their gods. And Israel begins to turn their back on Yahweh, on the living God. And and they try to do this thing where we worship God, but then we also worship all these pagan gods. And and it begins pulling them and their hearts away from the Lord. They kind of just go along with the culture. And it's, in case you're wondering, if you think it was just limited to the ancient Near East during the time of Judges, it's something that the church faces today. In the midst of, it seems like, a a big celebrity Christian every so often, whether it's the leader of some guy in Hillsong or Joshua Harris, some person is now finding it less and less popular to actually believe what the Bible says. In fact, guys, if you believe what the Bible says, people will call you bigots. You believe there's only two genders? They're going to call you a bigot, a racist, whatever, right? If you're opposed to the LGBTQIA sexual revolution, you're not going to win any popularity points, okay? And you're going to have a choice. Do I go along with the crowd? Or am I going to be different? Am I going to be set apart? Well, Israel makes their choice, right? They go along with all the the things that the nations around them say are okay, including their pagan worship practices. And God raises up these foreign nations to come and oppress the people because of their disobedience, because they were unfaithful to God, because they turned their back on God, and these nations just beat the tar out of them and oppress them. And then Israel cries out. Then they want help course in those moments and they cry out to God for help and then God will raise up judge after judge and when I say judge the the word really is better translated a deliverer or a savior they're not judges in a legal sense as judges really usually in a military type sense that come and, and save the people from these military oppressors and then they're good but for a while and then once again they fall right back into that same cycle of sin Again. So that's the story. That's the story of the judges. That's where we're at today. Part 21. Really part 2 of our Samson narrative. And we'll begin in chapter 14. Back in chapter 13. Samson's parents, Manoah and his mom, got a message from the angel of the Lord to say, Hey, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a Nazarite from birth. And he's going to begin to deliver 
the people from the hand of the Philistines. Philistine control and domination, there's essentially a 40-year occupation that's going on. Hard to imagine that. Imagine if there were like Russian flags that have been flying or Chinese flags or whatever, North Korean flags that have been flying in our country for the last 40 years, okay? Then you begin to kind of settle in like, oh, yeah, right? You're not just paying money to the IRS, you're now paying it to a national government as well. And the sad thing is, Israel seems to be, yeah, we're okay, whatever. It's just the status quo. Well, the status quo is about to change. Chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Samson meets this woman. He is picking up whatever she's laying down right now. Okay, he is, he's digging hard. She, she meets his definition of Mrs. Wright. It seems to be merely just a, a physical type thing right now. He likes her. He wants her. Tells mom and dad, go get her for me. And you can see, I, I, if you kind of sense in this almost passive way, they, they kind of discourage him a little bit. Like, like son, isn't, isn't there anyone from, you know, do you, do anyone that you could pick besides her? Is there anyone? Notice what he says in verse 3. Uh, must you go and choose a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? So they're, they're kind of trying to discourage Samson. Now, one thing to keep in mind, the Israelites, they practice circumcision, um, but they're not the only people that practice circumcision. There were other people living in and around them that also practiced circumcision as well. But for the Israelites, it was supposed to have a spiritual significance. Genesis 17, it was supposed to be, right, that mark that they are the people of God, where today we would say, like, baptism, right, is that outward sign that we belong to the new covenant people of God. So circumcision, it served an important and spiritual significance. But what's interesting, when his parents try to discourage him in verse 3, is, I think, what they don't say. What they don't say is probably more important than what they actually do say. Notice what they don't say. They don't say to Samson, Samson, Deuteronomy chapter 7, intermarriage, non-Israelites, forbidden, right? It's a no-go. Like, like, it's not just a bad idea. Like, God forbids that. Like Today I might say, is he a Christian? Is she a Christian? Well, they say they are. Well, do they love Jesus? Well, they say that they do. Are they a part of a local church? Well, no, but they're just really busy. But they mean well. Well, can you tell? Is there any evidence? Are they walking with Jesus? Do they love Jesus? Well, you know, they just have a really good heart, right? It's like, no, like, this is what they should be telling Samson. Samson, this isn't just like a black and, like, this isn't just a gray area. This is like black and white. Like, you have no business doing this. They don't tell him that. But they don't say, Samson, Back in chapter 13, God called you to this special Nazarite status within Israel. And for you to go and do this, this is compromising the call for God on your life. To get involved in this romantic relationship is compromising the call that God has for you. 
They don't say that. They could have said, Samson, God's plan, his agenda back in chapter 13 was for you to deliver us from the hands of the Philistines, not to cozy up in bed with them. But they don't say that either. In fact, all of this is going to remain unsaid. See, to to Samson's parents here, the, the proposition is really more of a cultural and ethnic problem than it is a spiritual one. And therein lies the really big problem here. They're not wrong for discouraging him. They they definitely should discourage him. The problem is, is they don't bring to him the real issue. They, They miss an opportunity to help Samson, to refocus Samson on what he needs to be refocused on and what he really needs to hear. And this is where, if we're not careful, we can easily be just like them. I would call them Christian moralists, such people who embrace the law of God without embracing the giver of the law, the creator. There's a lot of Christian moralists out there who love the law of God, but they don't love Jesus. And so so Christianity becomes nothing more than just be a good person, be be a good person, and, and nothing more. And I'll say right now that there are plenty of moral people Plenty of really good people who abstain from all the wrong things and who do all the right things who will end up in hell. See, what is absent from their instruction is the spiritual component. See, it's, it's where I don't just embrace the law of God, but I embrace, I embrace God, right? Because I love God because of who He is. Samson's parents, like I said, I think what's more telling is what they don't say than what they actually do say. And then we come into what I would say is probably the most important verse in the chapter, probably the most important verse in the entire what will be our four-part series of Samson, and that is verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. Pause. You think about, okay, why is this happening? If you were here for chapter 13, you know that God has a plan to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines have been oppressing them for 40 years. You know that God has a special calling on Samson's life. Like Samson's acting like Jonah. He's just doing his own thing. Why? Why is he ignoring the advice of his parents? Why is he going AWOL? His father and mother did not know. Mom and dad don't understand why. But it was from the Lord. (laughs) I never heard that one when it comes to this story. For he, God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Verse 4 provides the theological explanation. And once again, please, folks, all I did was read the verse. Okay? All I did was read the verse here. I didn't make any type of interpretation. I just read the verse. Why does Samson insist on doing his own thing? Why does he ignore his parents' advice? It was from God. And what you should know is that Samson's marriage to this woman is a picture It reflects 
Israel's willingness to coexist peacefully with the Philistines. You say, Samson's cozying up to them. Israel's just been doing that for years, guys. That's why they need someone to come and deliver them in the first place. They've been just going with whatever the culture says, right? It's not murder. It's just a woman's right to have reproductive health and stuff, right? It's not that. The culture says this. So that's what it is. And they've been going along with the flow. And here, the guy who's supposed to be their deliverer is off doing their own thing. And certainly this, I no doubt, will raise a question when we look at verse 4. You say, okay, how can this be? How can this be from God if Samson's doing the wrong thing? Because what do you call doing the wrong thing? Sin. How can this be from God if Samson is sinning? And there in Scripture, we see this mystery, right, between is Samson responsible? Absolutely. Is God totally sovereign over all things? You better believe it. All right? Okay, that's, that's the best I can give to you, right, as far as explanations go. He's totally sovereign over even the decisions and choices that we make. We're still responsible. For us, it's like, okay, I feel tension. The narrator has no tension. No tension at all for him. For us, I think sometimes because, well, it's 2019 and we're just so much smarter than all the subsequent generations that came before us, sometimes we have a hard time with it, but that's what the Word says. But more than just knowing this, I think what the verse 4 explanation does for us is it reveals just how big our God is. God has a plan for Samson. Samson, you're going to be a Nazarite from birth. You're going to begin to deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. And what does Samson do? Yeah, hard pass. And what, 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 what recourse does God have, right? Imagine God pacing around the room. Michael, Gabriel, what am we supposed to do? Samson just totally foiled my plans. Man, anything? You got? Come on, guys, you need a brainstorming session. Guys, that's not our God. Some of you, maybe that, that's, that was how you grew up and you just you had a very small view of God. That's, that's not the view of God that we have here. God's plans will not be foiled by this punk brat kid. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. I really am. God's plans cannot be stopped, delayed whatsoever. Even by Samson. He won't foil God's plans, even with his selfish stupidity. No, Yahweh is determined to shatter the status quo between Israel and the Philistines. And oh, by the way, Samson's going to be his chosen tool to rile these up. And the woman in the story is going to offer the opportunity to make it happen. I love the sovereignty of God. And when I say the sovereignty of God, I mean he's the quarterback who doesn't throw an incomplete pass. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases to do, whatever he wills to do. And I think the sovereignty of God shines the brightest in our moments of greatest need. You think Israel needs God right now? Forty years? Being oppressed by the Philistines? Yeah, they do. I think his sovereignty is shining pretty brightly right now. Then Samson went down with his father, verse 5. 
went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. It's interesting. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes, right? He, he digs this girl. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that he scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Some of you guys remember this from like your children's Bible story. I do. And uh, maybe I can add some things to the story that you've never seen before. Because as I was preparing for this message, I noticed things I never saw before in this story. And I think the first question is, right, here's Samson, they're doing all this wedding prep. Some of you guys, you've done wedding prep. Some of you guys, you're doing wedding prep. Some of you guys, hopefully, will do some wedding preparations in the future. But that's what Samson's going, that's what he's doing. They're going back and forth. And along the way, comes a lion. Spirit of God rushes upon him, tears the lion to peace, doesn't have any weapon, just tears it apart as if one tears a young goat, right? And there you are sitting at the, the, the dinner table and you're having goat for dinner. I've never had goat for dinner, but just imagine that and you're just pulling the meat off the bones, right? There's the picture of what's happening when the Spirit of God comes over Samson. You can see like his effortless strength to just manhandle this lion and rip it to pieces. And so he comes back, retraces his step a short time later, and of course he's curious, right? What happened? What happened to the lion? And there is the, the carcass, and in it it's got honeybees. And not only does it have honeybees, but they've already started making honey, which is, I think, also interesting. It's a wonder, you know, you might ask, does Samson even realize the source of his power at this point in his life? It's interesting, Samson doesn't tell his parents what happened, which, as we get to know Samson, this is strange that he doesn't tell his parents. Like the type of guy he is, you would expect him to tell his parents. You'd expect him to be bragging about this. Just being honest, like if this happened to any of you, I would expect to see it on your social media account. Okay? I just tore this lion to pieces with my bare hands. I think it, it's worth an Instagram story okay, or a tweet or whatever. But he doesn't tell anybody. You do some really amazing thing, and you don't tell anybody? It's like I never thought about that. Why doesn't he tell anybody? He acts very uncharacteristic in this moment. And I think part of it is because in that moment he has an idea to make some money. In that moment there is a premeditating of a not an idea that I can run with. But more than just an idea I can run with we ultimately know the explanation given to us in verse 4, right? God is in play in this story. Should be no surprise to us, he's in play in this story. And we begin to see that right away. He comes across this dead animal, and I don't know, any of you come across a dead animal before? Okay, a few people, okay, okay. Think about this. If you've come across a dead animal, what do you find in or around the dead animal? 
flies and maggots. That's what you would find. I never thought about this before. The narrator has no mention of flies or maggots. Rather, the narrator has this peculiar reference to honeybees. And not just honeybees, but they're producing honey. You don't normally find this in a dead animal carcass. You find flies and maggots. Doesn't matter which hemisphere you live in, that's what you find. And once again, you're like, that is peculiar. That is very, very strange. And you begin to see that verse 4 right? I said verse 4 is important. You begin to see like God's sovereign hand in play in this entire story. You normally find flies and maggots and yet the lion has apparently dehydrated so quickly that it's not just inhabitable for the honeybees but they've already somehow started making honey. How does that happen? Right? And then you've got verse 4 in the back of your mind. You're like, that's how it happens, right? Because God is very much ordaining this entire story to be and it will become for Samson the first test Samson is a Nazarite and there is significance of that now typically if you're a Nazarite you enter into a Nazarite vow for a specific period of time you're not normally a Nazarite for life but Samson is and we we understand that back in chapter 13 the Apostle Paul took a Nazarite vow back in the book of Acts. So you enter into a Nazarite vow for a specific period of time, and you would do this as an act of dedication to God. And while under that Nazarite vow, three things would be in play. One, you would not touch a dead body. Well, it's an animal carcass. Okay, you know, it's like, all right. Second, you have zero consumption of any sort of alcohol. Three, you don't cut your hair. Once again, a little bit unique because Samson's is Nazarite for life, but those are the three things. You don't touch a dead body, you don't drink or consume any sort of alcohol, and finally, you don't cut your hair while under the Nazarite vow. And what we see here, I think, in the narrator's mind, the fact that we don't have flies and maggots on the scene, but that we have honeybees producing honey, is no doubt, as one commentator says, the work of God that will prepare this test for Samson. He's passed the first physical test with flying colors. Lion comes up, Spirit of God comes on, boom, rips him apart. But now he has his spiritual test. What will he do? The ironic thing is the man, the man who can tear apart the lion is helpless to the little honeybee. He fails the first spiritual test. And what's more than that, he doesn't care. You say, well, it's a dead animal carcass, not a dead body. But the thing is, is when you read Leviticus chapter 11, 24 to 25, it makes clear that no Israelite whatsoever is supposed to touch a dead animal carcass. Okay? So it's not like, eh, it's a gray area. It's like that much more worse for Samson. No Israelite is supposed to come in contact with a dead animal carcass, and he does. And then he doesn't tell his parents, and he callously implicates them doesn't tell him. You should tell him. Mom and Dad, like, I'm going to cause you to sin right now. Doesn't do it. That's Samson, right? He doesn't care about anyone but Samson. And so he fails the spiritual test that God has for him. He can defeat the lion. He can't. He's no match for the honeybee. And then as soon as that happens, verse 10, his father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there For so the young men used to do. Verse 10 sounds relatively innocent. They're just doing more wedding preparation. Until you understand that that word feast 
that word feast in the original language would refer to, in this context, this seven-day drinking festival. In two verses, Samson is going to violate two aspects of his Nazarite vow. Two verses. Two verses, and he, he already strikes out twice. So they're having this seven-day just raging party. Everyone's getting just sloshed. And there's Samson. He doesn't care. Because that's the type of guy Samson is. Samson goes to the beat of his own drum. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Pause. This verse could be interpreted negatively or positively. They brought him 30 companions. What does that mean? How should we understand that? Could have been, well, he's marrying one of the gals, one of the Philistine gals. He's not a Philistine. Want to make sure he has a good time. Make sure he has some Philistine friends. Could be. But what it's probably the case is this verse should probably be understood negatively. In other words, these so-called companions are also doubling as bodyguards. This probably should be referred to as a hostile act, that they are afraid, they are intimidated. Samson makes them nervous. They are aware of his strength, perhaps. And of course, I think this verse, viewing this negatively, fits well within the verse 4 theological interpretation. God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Samson, what he should be doing. Of course, he's not doing that. It's okay. God's going to take care of it. And so Samson's not dazed at all. They throw around, hey, Samson, we're going to introduce 30 companions to be here during the wedding festival. He's like, yeah, whatever. He's like, hey, how about we make this interesting? I got a, you guys like riddles? Got a riddle. Tell us a riddle. How about we make it interesting? Put some money on it. Okay, we'll do that. And Samson said to them, verse 12, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. They have absolutely no chance of solving that riddle. Unless they heard of this story or personally witnessed it, they have no chance to get this riddle. As peculiar as this story was, you don't normally find honeybees already making honey in a dead animal carcass. They have no chance. And then we begin to think about how Samson acts uncharacteristically humble, maybe, by not telling anyone about what actually occurred. Well, they know they have no chance, and after a few days, they take matters into their own hands. On the fourth day, verse 15, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, or we're going to kill you, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people. And you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? 
And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. They have no chance to figure this out. They don't want to lose on this money. It's not just about the money. It's also about the fact it's money that we're going to have to pay Samson. And we don't like him necessarily. So threaten the wife. And the wife comes to Samson. Tell me the riddle. No. You don't love me, right? You hate me. If you've maybe ever had a significant other at some point, maybe you've experienced that. Some, you don't love me. You, you hate me. All I said was you can't use the credit card and go on a shopping spree. <laughs> but that's what she is doing. That's what's happening here. And finally, Samson can take no more of this whatsoever. And he tells her, gets it over with. Of course, she runs and tells the Philistines, and they come to him. Verse 18, And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. He's furious. You guys plowed with my heifer! In case you think that maybe the language was softer in the original Hebrew, it wasn't. It was probably just as offensive to them as it might be to you hearing Samson refer to his wife as a cow. But he's mad. In other words, you guys cheated. He's furious with them. Well, he had a lot of money on, on the line, and he never thought there was any chance whatsoever he could lose. And then he did. And the spear of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, verse 19, and struck down the thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Even though Samson seems to be doing everything he can to cozy up with these Philistines and defy God and God's calling on his life, God's plans will not be thwarted. God's plans will not be opposed. God's plans will not be stopped or delayed. That's really good news for the people of God who call him our God. He's a big God. That's why it reminds me so much this story. I think of Jonah and Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. I'm doing the opposite, right? Samson, deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines. Yeah, hard pass. Not interested. In fact, I'm going to just do whatever I want to do. Okay, cool. Yahweh is determined to stir up this relationship between Israel and the Philistines. See, in, in Samson... We witness this individual who is disrespectful to his parents, who is callous toward his Nazarite calling, who really has no loyalty whatsoever to his own people of whom he's supposed to be their deliverer. He is compromising in his ethic. He is rude to his wife. He is flippant with his tongue. He is driven by lust and his own appetite. And the only way that good is seemingly going to come from this man is if God overpowers him with his spirit because this man, Samson, he doesn't seem at all inclined to do the right thing at all. 
And in fact, it, it very much reminds me in this Romans 8, 7 sort of way. Samson's life here as almost an illustration to the life of all men, to illustrate the depravity of all men, the sinfulness of man. Samson is not interested in doing what he's supposed to be doing. You look at Romans chapter 8, 7. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, and keep in mind, the mind that is set on the flesh, oh, by the way, that's the mind of every single unbeliever. What kind of mind does an unbeliever have? They have a Romans 8, 7, 1. One that's set on the flesh. Okay, I got it. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Okay? It's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. It just can't. It's, it's unable to. It's so totally depraved, so God-hating, so hostile, it doesn't, apart from an act of God in our lives to come and give us new desires. The, the, this is the new birth that we experience. Apart from that, this is every single one of us at some point or another. This is the mind that my father has. This is the mind that my sister has right now. This is the mind that the vast majority of my family members have. Samson is not inclined whatsoever to do the thing he's supposed to do. It's not going to happen apart from God overcoming him with his spirit. And in that, we see the picture that God does in all of our lives at one point or another. Overcoming our hostility toward him, our depravity, our our self-centeredness, while at the same time elevating the grace of God. Because let's be honest, if I'm God in this story, and I'm like, all right, you guys, you've, you guys have been doing your own thing, rebellious, disobedient. Yeah, I've laid the smack down on your tails for 40 years. And you know what? Out of my goodness, out of my kindness, out of my compassion, out of my graciousness, I'll give you a deliverer. And then the deliverer doesn't want to show up and be a deliverer. It's kind of a a unique twist to the book of the Judges. It hasn't kind of happened yet where the deliverer doesn't actually want to be the deliverer. You know, you think, you know, no boss would tolerate that, right? You're a mailman, you don't want to deliver the mail, right? You don't show up to work, you get fired. And yet you see God's kindness, God's compassion, God's graciousness in the life of Samson. You know, when I think of the story of Samson... This is not the story I think of. I think of the little children's book where we learn about this guy who's really, really strong. He's a little misunderstood. Doesn't always make the best decisions, but in the end, it all works out, and it ends happily ever after. That's why I love verse-by-verse expository preaching, because it gives you the unedited, raw Bible story. Like, I'm reading this, I'm like, what Bible do I have right now? English Standard Version. Okay, all right, well, what did I have growing up? This is not the Samson that I heard about. Not by a long shot. And Samson, in this story, he gets these tests over and over again. And, of course, the story in life of Samson is the story in life of the people of God. Will you obey? Will you do it God's way? Will you be obedient to him? Samson, think about what's just happening in this chapter. Faces the lion, 
He knocks that one out of the park. All right, little honeybee. You just knocked the line out of the park. You can't deal with this honeybee? And he, and he fails the test. He fails the test. He's got these spiritual tests that he just keeps failing because he wants to do it his way. And yet at the end of the story, what we see is we see God totally in control. We see God totally in control at the end of the story. How is that even possible? I, I grew up and, and oftentimes I was taught God is he's a gentleman. He, he never forces himself on, or imposes himself or his will on, on anyone. Um, and I'm, then I'm reading this story, and I'm like, well, how does this story end where God's totally in control? Because that, I mean, I, that's very much what I was taught growing up. Not that I never necessarily heard verses supporting that type of understanding of who God was. That's just what I was taught. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm reading this story, and I'm like, what's going on here? Like, God is totally in control. Especially as I hone in on verse 4, right? Mom and dad don't get why he's going off the rails right now. It's okay. God knows exactly what he's doing. And in the midst of a world that sometimes seems absolutely crazy, it is believing in a totally sovereign God that will be the only thing that maybe helps you sleep at night. He's totally sovereign over hurts and pains. He's totally sovereign over kingdoms and elections. He is in charge. He is the king. He is ruling sovereignly on his throne. And his will will be accomplished. His will will be accomplished. This story ends exactly where God wants it to. He is provoking the tensions between the Israelites and the Philistines. And oh, by the way, unaware of their roles in divine providence, the characters are going to create the very situation that Yahweh's planned. I'm going to say that again because it's just such an important sentence in the sermon. Unaware of their roles in divine providence, the characters in this story will actually create the very situation that God has planned. That's why it reminds me like Jonah, right? Go to Nineveh. Nope. Hard pass, right? Okay. It's fine. You're going to go to Nineveh. Samson, you're going to deliver my people from the Philistines. <laughs> Whatever, hard pass. Okay. And it raises this question, knowing that God's totally in control, despite the fact that Samson was trying to cozy up with the Philistines, and yet the story ends, his whole life is in shambles. It begs the question, will we do it God's way? He gets test after test after test in his life, and he just fails him. He's selfish. He's a punk. He's a little brat. No one's going to tell him what to do. No one's going to correct him. No one's going to rebuke him. He just goes to the beat of his own drum. It raises the question, what if Samson, say, uh, alternate ending, what if he had just done it God's way? I wonder if he would have avoided a few less headaches along the way. Samson's not someone to emulate. Samson's not someone to look up to. Samson's, Samson's not someone to hold on a pedestal. Quite the opposite. If Samson goes left, you probably just should go right. But it's certainly, if that's true, right, and it's like, all right, yeah, I think it's fair to say maybe Samson could have avoided some headaches along the way and the headaches to come. He fails these spiritual tests. 
what does that say about me? Like some of you guys, you, you fail the same test over and over again. Over and over again. I think we can, fair to say, it's better to do it God's way than do it Samson's way. That just didn't work out for this guy. It's better to do it God's way. Will we do it God's way? Do what? Right? Whatever right now the Holy Spirit's like putting on your heart, you know. You know what it is. Maybe it's like a spiritual apathy. And you're like, you know what? I know. Like this guy, Tony, I talked to last two months ago when I was doing my army time. And, and Tony's like, Joe, I, just, I like to listen to online sermons, and that's enough. And I'm like, Tony, Hebrews chapter 10 is really clear. Like, you're neglecting to meet together. You're neglecting to be the church, right? To be the spiritual family on a mission, living together to reach the unsaved and the, and the lost. Like, you're not even the type of person that, like, is just content to warm a pew once a week. Like, you're not even that. Like, Tony, not only that, but you're missing the opportunity to stir up one another to love and good works. Yeah, no, I don't care, Joe. Uh, will we do it God's way? We'll do it our way. Like, some of you have been doing it your way for so long. It's like, how's that working out for you? And you just keep failing the same test over and over again. Right? Dealing with, dealing with that same thing again and again. It's like, okay. It's like, there's the pothole, right? It's like, all right, I stepped in that pothole last week. All right, here we go. Could go around it, but maybe I'll just walk right through the pothole and see if I can not trip when I walk through this time. And you fail again and again. You're like, Samson, yeah, you can take the lion down, but you can't ironically take down the honeybee? Yeah, I think it's fair to say Samson would have probably avoided a lot of headaches had he just done it God's way. And I think if that's true for him, then what well, if that's true for us, right? Will we do it God's way? God's ways are better, guys. The devil will tell you, oh no, you don't want to do that. Let me show you a shortcut around this. And we buy into those lies that the devil tells us over and over again. And we find ourselves with Samson, this entire thing. I mean, it could be a movie script. Literally, like, his wife is given away to his best man. I mean, it's just, his world is upside down. And for some of you, maybe that's where you're at or that's where you're about to be unless you bring your life into conformity to the king, unless you repent now. Like, if it's quite possible, God's been so gracious and so patient with some of you and you've just been, like, doing your own thing and he, like Samson, his grace, it has an expiration date. It's not forever. I am I'm really thankful for this story, I'm really thankful for verse 4 that shows us a glimpse of such a strong and really in-charge God over Samson's choices to bring about the situation that ultimately he planned for for the good of his people, despite the fact that Samson was doing the opposite thing. And I'm also really grateful that that same God broke through history to overpower our Romans 8-7 hostile minds to show us what we couldn't otherwise see, the beauty of Christ crucified. And I'm really thankful to know that we have a better Samson. Where Samson is just, he's a terrible deliverer for his people. He doesn't really care about them. I'm thankful that in Christ we have 
a better Samson. We have the perfect deliverer. Where Samson fails, Christ succeeds every time. You have a very big God whose plans cannot be stopped or opposed, whose grace is so deep, and yet his patience, his patience doesn't last forever. He's not calling us to partial obedience. He's calling us to total surrender, to bring our lives under the authority of the Scriptures, to walk faithfully with Him. So will we do it God's way, or will we do it our way like Samson, I think, is the question. So as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. Lord, I pray that we might get a glimpse of your infinite beauty, power, sovereignty, and grace in this story. I pray that we would walk out of here today viewing you a lot bigger than when we walked in. And Lord, I also, I thank you for your grace, and I pray that we would not abuse it, and I pray, Lord, that we would do it your way. Whatever task, whatever plan, whatever you've laid on our heart to do, I pray that we would do it, that we wouldn't go rogue like Samson, but that we would be faithful and obedient to you and to what your word says, God. And yet I know that sometimes can be really, really hard. So we join with St. Augustine as he prayed so many centuries ago, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, you've commanded us to, to, to be obedient, to be faithful to you, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and empower us, just as you empowered Samson to defeat the lion. I pray that you would empower us to live an obedient life, totally surrendered to you. We need you, God. Well, we always do. So help us, Jesus. Amen.